Today, we are going to be talking about the topic from exile to redemption. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19 says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So, let's start off breaking this down. I want us to understand this passage, okay? So, what are these four minor feasts that the book of Zechariah is talking about? The prophet of Zechariah is talking about these things. I'm going to reverse the order of these just a little bit. So, um, let's talk about these four minor fasts mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And um, like I said, I'm going to take them out of order because um, the way they're ordered, they're listed in the uh, order of the, how they hit in the year. But I'm going to do them, list them historically. And the, really, the only one that you have to take back uh, out of order from the listing is the, the fast of the 10th month. Okay, so what is the fast of the 10th month? Anybody know right offhand? Because these are hard to keep up with. What are they? What is it? Nope. Yom Kippur is not on the list. These are minor fasts. Okay? So a lot of people are not familiar with them. And that's why I'm bringing them up. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So the first one is the 10th of Tevet, which is Asara B'Tevet. Okay? It, 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 all it's just called is the 10th of Tevet. There's no special name for it. But it, it commemorates... And remembers the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. This is roughly the year, according to historical um, the counting that we have, in the year 588 BCE. Okay, and if you want to read about that, you can read about it. If you're taking notes, you can read about it in Second Kings chapter 21. Um, it begins that topic there. So the t- the fast of the tenth month is the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, everybody got that? So we fast on that day <clears throat> to remember. Now, the 10th month, when is it? Okay, so remember, the, the months that we're counting here started in the spring with Nisan. So this is like towards the end of, this is like fall, beginning of winter time. So we are in the um, fifth month right now, and so you can roughly take five months from now is when it happens, okay? Um, the second one is the fast of the fourth month, and this one is known by the name of Tzom or Tzom Tammuz, the fast of Tammuz. It hits on the 17th of Tammuz, and um, this is what happened there. 18 months after the siege of Jerusalem began, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, so they, he began the siege in the 10th of Tevet in 588. And then 18 months later, on some Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz, he actually broke through the wall, according to um, the Talmud. The third one is the, fifth, the fast of the fifth month, and this is the one that we're in right now. Today is the fast of the fifth month. Okay, it's postponed till tomorrow. But today is the fast of the fifth month. It is the ninth of Av, or Tisha B'Av. Tisha is the Hebrew word for ninth of the Hebrew month of Av. <clears throat> what happened on, on this? Well, three weeks after, uh, the walls of Jerusalem were breached on the seventh of, 17th of Tammuz, like we said, 
The holy temple fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and it was burned to the ground. It was completely destroyed. And this is also the same date that the uh, Roman um, general Titus destroyed the second temple on the exact same day, okay, uh, 600 years later, roughly. So this happened <clears throat> 586 BCE, the first one, and then the second one, 70 AD. So Tisha B'Av is the destruction of the first temple. It's also the destruction of the second temple. There's a whole list of things that actually happened on Tisha B'Av. Historically, this is linked to the, um, the Torah reading that we read just a few weeks ago of the uh, bad report, the evil report of the spies. Remember, the spies come back from, from looking at Canaan and the land of promise, the promised land that God had promised to give to them. And they come back, and Joshua and Caleb were like, yeah, let's do it. And the other ten were like, no way, no way. This, this land is atrocious. It like swallows up its inhabitants. We're going to go in there. We're going to just die, you know. And so there's no way we can do this. Um, and so the sages say from, from that day forward, that day became a day of calamity. The Lord said to the people, it says, uh, th- on this day that they were weeping and, and crying that they, couldn't, that they wouldn't go in because it was too difficult. He says, there's no reason to cry, but you're weeping. I'm going to give you something to cry about um, at this point on. So you will remember your disobedience. And so Tisha B'Av, the first temple fell. Tisha B'Av, the second temple fell. Tisha B'Av is also the date by which uh, the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. Uh, it is the date um, on which the, um, I think it's the Archduke Ferdinand, was that who it was, was um, um, huh? assassinated, which precipitated World War I, which ultimately led to the Holocaust. Um, there's other dates. I'm sure Dr. David will be handing out a, a sheet of paper that's probably two or three pages long of all the different things that happened on that today, if you want to get one of those. Um, but, but just suffice to say that this day is um, a day that is not a particular good day in the history of the Jewish people. The fast of the seventh month. Now, this is called the fast of Gedalia or Tzom Gedalia. This is the fast of, the, of Gedalia, the governor of Judea. And he was um, assassinated um, after the destruction of the temple. And what that did was basically the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is sacked, and, and you have um, people, but they're still under leadership. When the, when the governor of Judea is assassinated, now we have no leadership. Okay, The, the self-rule is completely gone. It is totally ended. Okay, And so we have <clears throat> these four fasts. The fast of the 10th month, which is the beginning of the siege. The fast of the 4th uh, month is the, uh, when the walls are breached. The fast of the 5th month is when the, the temples were destroyed. The fast of the 7th month is when Jewish um, autonomy ended. So, question. Have these fasts been turned to, quote, the days of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts that Zechariah has talked about. Has that happened yet? Should we ignore these minor fasts now that Yeshua has come? Okay, that's the question we're going to be looking at today. Zechariah 
in the fuller context of this passage, I'm going to read verses, the, the few verses that follow this. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us, at, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. So it's, it's this futuristic thing that's going to happen once these feasts are turned to gladness and joy. Okay? And then it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, <clears throat> We're living in amazing times. We are starting to see that happen. Okay, you're seeing messianic congregations popping up all over the place. You're seeing uh, the church come and learning from us, from the messianic community, from uh, the rabbis, and so forth. You're seeing this sort of take place in our day, but has it fully come yet? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. But that day is on the way. We are waiting and anticipating and look forward, looking forward to these days. Now, one thing that you will have noticed, all of these four minor fast days, they're all related to what? That single important thing, the Holy Temple. Okay, The destruction of the Holy Temple and the destruction of uh, the leadership there in Jerusalem. So, all of this is in the, in the past, right? So my question is, what does that have to do with us? I mean, what does that have to do with us today? And here's the simple answer. As I said, today is Tisha B'Av. It's a day, it's a fast day. Oneg is canceled. Have a good day. <laughs> Just joking. Okay, so um, Tisha B'Av, if it happens on, if it falls on a Shabbat, then the fasting is postponed. We postpone the fasting until the following day because the joy of the Shabbat overrides a minor fast day. Now, there's only one day that it doesn't override. And what is that? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There you go. Now, Dave has got it. <laughs> and, but on these minor fast days, the Shabbat overrides or overrules the fast day, okay? And so, again, another question. Why should we, in 2018, be concerned about the destruction of the temple that happened 2,000 years ago? I mean, most people, especially within the church and other places, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing. It, has, it doesn't have any weight. It doesn't have any kind of impact on our personal lives, okay? It's just history, just something in the past, something that we remember, something that we study. It's a relic of antiquity. And one of the reasons it is this way is because the, the predominant view on this is that Yeshua, since he was rejected or since he fulfilled the sacrificial systems in his ultimate death and resurrection, that God didn't need this whole temple system anymore. And so he just did away with it, okay? Out with the old, in with the new. No more animal sacrifices, no more rituals, no more all that kind of stuff in the temple. 
uh, no more of this exclusive people that are privileged, like the Levites and the Kohanim, the priests, and all that kind of stuff. Out with that system, in with the new. Yeshua's come. He's replaced everything. He's made all things new. He's done a new work. He's the now the, the, the new high priest, and he, he's replaced all of this. Okay, that's the typical answer. <clears throat> but does Scripture really and truly say that? Okay? Um, we're going to take this a little bit different than what we've taken in the past. If you haven't um, listened to um, our seven, seven part teaching, seven or eight, seven part teaching, I think, on um, um, it's called Nothing But the Blood and Yeshua and his uh, relationship to the temple and the sacrificial system and all of these things about what the sacrifices were and how that, that, um, um, Yeshua's atonement and everything worked in conjunction with those. Um, I encourage you to check that out. I think it's still on YouTube. And, um, but I'm going to go the direction today of looking at Yeshua's actions and Yeshua's teachings himself. And there's so many of them. There, there's, we could spend all day looking at them. So I'm going to focus it down onto really two things that are, are direct, directly related to one another. And the first is Yeshua's parable of the fig tree. So if you will open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. And these are passages, this, um, this parable that he tells and then this action that he's going to do <clears throat> that have been so misinterpreted and taken out of context and misapplied over the last 2,000 years, and unfortunately has brought much harm and destruction to the Jewish people because of it. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, speaking of Yeshua, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So keep that in mind. He saw the leaves, looked for fruit, no fruit, but really there's no reason for him to expect fruit on this tree because it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay. Now, Mark... A few verses later, in verse 20, has the disciples um, coming by the fig tree again in the morning, and it is, it is cursed. Uh, I believe Matthew's account has it cursed immediately, and it shrivels up and dies. Okay, but either way, and um, by the way, I said we were going to do a parable, but um, I got my passages mixed up. So um, the parable is going to be here in a little bit in, in, in Luke chapter 13. <clears throat> but this instant of this Yeshua I mean what is up with this okay why did he expect to find tr fruit on a tr fig tree that it's not even seasoned for I mean it's like me going out in the middle of the winter and expecting to find cucumbers in my garden okay now that would really be even more miraculous for me since I don't even have a garden you know uh, but still I wouldn't find any <clears throat> um, why did Yeshua curse the fig tree 
because it was just doing what it was supposed to do, really, it seems. Okay? The traditional views on this are that Yeshua was doing this action, first of all, to say that the Jews were being replaced and that the Christians were going to take their place. Okay? This is a traditional perspective. The Jews and their legalism and all that kind of stuff, Judaism um, and their, their, their law and all that kind of stuff, that was going out, grace was coming in. Okay? All this stuff was old, Yeshua was bringing something new, and he wanted to give them a physical demonstration of this reality. The second is that the temple was going to be uh, destroyed, and the old system of doing things was going away, and a new one coming in. And the third is related that the Levitical system was going out, and a new system coming in. So basically, the traditional understanding of this passage is that Jewish stuff in general was being cursed by Yeshua, and he was bringing in a new era of grace over this legalistic Jewish stuff, okay? Now, let's flip over to Luke chapter 13. And let's listen to Yeshua's parable about a fig tree. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it uh, use up the ground? Okay, you've heard the expression, you're just taking up space, that's, that's the deal here. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. I fertilize it. Then it should bear fruit next year. Well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Okay, so he, he makes this bargain with him. He says, the, the owner of the land, he says, you know, this tree is just taking up space. I want it gone. I've had it for three years. It hasn't borne any fruit. Let's just get rid of it. And, and the... the, the um, the one who's working the land, he, he says, wait a minute, I, I think I can do something with this, okay? I think there's hope. Let me cultivate this. Let me put my hands on it. Let me get into it. Let me, let me take care of it. Let me, let me give it some TLC, and I think you're going to see some results next year. It's going to take a whole other year for it to, to be fruit season again, but then I think you're going to notice a difference, and, and so the guy agrees, Okay. So, in this parable, first of all, when Yeshua talks about a vineyard, this is the classic rabbinic uh, method of telling parables. Whenever a vineyard is mentioned, vineyard almost unanimously um, represents the children of Israel. Okay? Represents Israel. And so, this fig tree is in the middle of Israel. Okay? And so, with this... This is talking about this temple and this priesthood here. Uh, the fig tree represents this in, to some degree. And so Yeshua, in this parable, um, and we're going to look at a couple other passages related to this, 
But in this, he is saying that basically, I, I've desired fruit from this generation. This generation has not produced the fruit that it should. But I'm here, and I'm going to try to sway it to produce the fruits that I've been looking for. Okay? Um, and what is Yeshua looking for? He's looking for all those things that John talked about when he was baptizing. The fruits of righteousness in keeping with repentance. And we'll talk about a list here in a minute. But he's looking for his generation to produce the fruits of righteousness. And what did he find? He found nothing. Okay? So let's go back to the fig tree that he cursed. Why was he looking for fruits? Okay? Because sometimes in a fig tree, you have leftover fruit from the previous year because you're in between seasons. Some fig trees may bud a little early and produce something, but generally you have some kind of fruit left over or something. But even if you didn't, Yeshua, his point wasn't necessarily to say, I'm hungry. His point was to say, this is a fruit-producing tree that is not producing fruit, and so I'm going to use this illustration of Israel. You should be producing fruit, but you are not producing fruit. And therefore, destruction begins with the house of the Lord. Okay? And so this is the message here. Let's, let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 8. If we look at Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, we see a parallel that's very similar to what Yeshua is teaching here, okay? Jeremiah is, is speaking, and he, remember, Jeremiah, um, he is talking, he's right there on the edge of the destruction of the temple in his generation, right? Um, the Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, and all the, you have all these false prophets. What are they telling, uh, what are they telling, I believe it was Hezekiah? I, I get my, uh, my kings mixed up. But anyway, he, they were telling the leadership of Israel in that day, says, oh man, just trust in the Lord. He's going to destroy your enemies. He's going to get this guy out of here. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be nothing. God's going to rule and reign and kick his rear and all that kind of stuff. And, and you guys don't have to worry about anything because God is going to deliver us. That's what the false prophets were saying. Yeah, whoa, that's exactly right. Okay? That's what we want to hear, and that's what makes a false prophet a false prophet, because they tell us what we want to hear instead of telling us the truth. Okay? That's like a doctor telling somebody that has cancer, you know, oh, you're good, you're fine, man, everything is great, everything's great, you know, instead of dealing with it or whatever. Okay? And so the false prophets were telling them all this kind of stuff, but Jeremiah, who was the true prophet, he was saying stuff that didn't make sense to them. I mean, think about it. Think about it if you were in their shoes. And this guy's coming along, uh, and, and you're, your country is being uh, attacked. You've got a siege going on around the city. And this crazy guy starts saying, you, you have all these prophets that you know of are saying that God's going to deliver you. Then you have this one guy saying, no, you need to give up. You just need to submit. You need to come under the authority of this Babylonian king. You need to uh, submit to him and become their servants and slaves and all that kind of stuff. And, and forget about Jerusalem. Forget about this. 
Forget about everything and just go and do what that pagan king wants you to do. Which one are you going to listen to? It doesn't, doesn't sound like you will probably listen to the second one, does it? That's our human nature. We're going we're gonna to trust and hope for what we want. But Jeremiah is here, and he is called the weeping prophet because he weeps on behalf of Israel, and specifically Jerusalem and the holy temple that's about to be wiped out. And he's weeping and trying to get these guys to listen to him. And he says this, uh, speaking of... <clears throat> Of Israel, uh, in the you know the, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Sound familiar? Even the leaves are withered, and what, that, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Okay? So the Lord compares Israel to this fig tree that's not producing fruit that he desires. Another passage in Micah, who is, um, I believe, in the same time frame as Jeremiah, another prophet in the, the, that um, is very unpopular by way of his message. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the desire, evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. That's Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And so, <clears throat> Yeshua is using this parable of the fig tree to, to t make a very important point at a crucial time. Because his generation, he knew was the generation that had potential. They had potential for greatness. They had potential for wickedness, okay? For, for great things and bad things. And they were competing with them, one another. And this is why when we ask, well, why did God destroy the temple in this generation? Well, it's the same reason he destroyed the temple 600 years previously is because these people were on the brink of either doing something right are really getting it wrong. And this the generation that Yeshua has, uh, is preaching to is that generation as well. And so in this parable, let's look at these symbols in this parable. First of all, the owner of the fig tree, who is this representative of? This is, represented, uh, is representative of God. God is the one who owns the fig tree. <clears throat> what is the fig tree? What does it represent? It represents Yeshua's generation. And what are these fruits that they are looking for on this fig tree? They are the deeds of good deeds and repentance. They are the mitzvot, living out the commandments, treating people with kindness, and repenting. Okay? And so Yeshua's action was a prophetic sign for the coming judgment against Israel which would culminate in the destruction of 
the temple because God's people were not worthy to have his presence among them. He says, I can't, I can't dwell in this mess. Okay, so let's look at some of the charges that the sages say that were um, being held against the uh, children of Israel during Yeshua's generation, at the time that Yeshua was um, preaching to them to repent, okay? <clears throat> Does anybody remember what the first temple, first of all, let's go back real quick. The first temple was destroyed for, what was the reason that the sages say the first temple was destroyed? Idolatry, okay? They were pagan idolaters, okay? They had, they had fallen prey to other gods. But the second temple, why did the sages tell us it was destroyed? Because of sinat chinam, baseless hatred between brothers. Baseless hatred between brothers. Okay? And then the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat and Gitin spell out even more accusations against that generation, such as desecration of Shabbat, <clears throat> the neglect of prayers, the neglect of children, brazenness, profaning the priesthood, a failure to rebuke sin, disrespect for Torah scholars, gossip, slander, public humiliation, and one that Yeshua um, taught extensively about and made examples extensively about is placing ritual purity above human life. Okay? Matter of fact, there's a saying in, in Tosefta, that in the days of the second temple, that purity broke out in Israel. And that's, which means um, there was a concern for ritual purity that was to the extent that human life was not important. Okay? So, again, what does all this have to do with me today, with us today? Do we have any kind of application? I mean, what is all this information for? Well, first, each time the Holy Temple was destroyed, we have to remember it wasn't because um, the Lord wanted to get rid of the sacrificial system, okay? It was because the Lord had to remove something that was very precious from Israel because they were making it profane, okay? And he could not allow it to dwell within them, uh, with, among their presence, in their presence. Each time, it was because his people had forsaken him and, not, and gone, and excuse me, each time it was because people had forsaken him and they had gone their own way. The first one, as we said, the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry. They did not love the truth, okay? The Lord is one. That's a central truth that we hold to. Second, the sin of the second temple was the baseless hatred among brothers. In other words, um, they did not love peace. Okay, but again, you know, how does this apply to us? You know, we're not idolaters. We love our brothers, right? Here's the accusation against us. <clears throat> the Talmud says in Yerushalmi Yoma 1, Every generation that does not rebuild the temple is as though they destroyed it. Okay? Because it is not something 
that we've that changed our lives. We have, I think it was Churchill that said, "What we have learned from history is that we haven't learned from history." <clears throat> and so, when it just is history, and it's not something that changes us, that changes the way we do things and live out our lives, then it has doesn't have the effect that it's supposed to. This saying of the sages takes the destruction of the Holy Temple out of the past and brings it into our day. It changes it from merely being in a historical event to a present-day reality. In other words, the destruction of the temple is not just something that happened in the past due to past sins. Rather, it's a living entity, and it's connected to our daily actions. Were we worthy, the temple would be rebuilt, but it remains in ruins because we have still not learned our lesson. Okay, human, human nature is to take the path of least resistance, right? I mean, we've all seen that. We're, we're compared to water in that regard. You know, if I were to pour this glass of water, it would go down and it would just sort of trickle off and whatever little indentations or slants or slopes or whatever that would be in the, the flooring and everything, it would head that direction. It takes the path of least resistance. We, we're all like that to some degree, okay? <clears throat> and so... Here are the things that take effort uh, to do that is a struggle for many, many people, okay? It takes effort to get up early and pray. It takes effort to study the weekly Torah portion every day. It takes effort to set aside Shabbat as holy and consecrate it like it should be. It takes effort to understand the biblical calendar and let our lives revolve around that. It takes effort to fast on the days that we should. It takes effort to overlook offenses and hold our tongues. It takes effort to help a brother or sister in the time of need. It takes effort to teach our children the ways of God on a daily basis. It takes effort, and the list goes on, right? But our effort should be working to cancel out the list of um, the, de- the decrees against us, the accusations against us, that's the word I'm looking for, the desecration of the Shabbat, the neglect of prayers, neglect of children, brazenness, profaning the priesthood, failure to rebuke sin, dis- disrespect to Torah scholars, gossip, slander, public humiliation, and placing ritual, of pure, ritual purity above human life. We should be working in every aspect of our lives to overcome these. But some of us don't even know that this accusation list exists, so how can we work towards it, okay? Effort. It doesn't take much effort to grab the TV remote, to turn on the TV, to turn off our brains, and to veg out, does it? But it does take effort to get our hands dirty and be disciplined and saturate our lives with the things of God. But even though we're born with a nature that's prone to apathy, we still have been given a free will to be able to choose God's will above our own. I mean, that's the whole wrestle of human existence. We are humans in that we have the ability to choose. Animals They have some ability to choose, but us as humans, we can reason 
and we can think things through, we can process things and say, you know what, I'm going to submit my will in this area to, because of something greater. And this is the difference between man and beast. The good news of Yeshua was what? What's his good news? What's his gospel message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is repeated throughout the gospels, right? Repent. We've been, we've been talking about that for a long time. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, in other words, is on the brink of arrival. And so when Yeshua cursed the fig tree, he was looking for the fruits of righteousness, but at the bare minimum, the fruits of repentance in his brothers and sisters. But what did he find? He found neither. And he still seeks fruit from us today. So, wrapping up, what does this Tisha B'Av thing have to do with me? You may be wondering. <clears throat> All this stuff is done, this damage is done with these, by the previous generations. Okay, But what about us? How can we change things? Believe it or not, we have the ability to change the path we're headed down for the good. There's an f- expression in Hebrew, Mase avot siman lebanim, okay? which means the deeds of the fathers are the signs or the guideposts or something that sets the direction for the children. <clears throat> All of us are products of our environment in some way, some way form, or fashion. Because our parents were a certain way, it made us a certain way. The people that raised us were a certain way, it made us a certain way. Okay? But I love Rabbi Tversky's quote on that. It says, you can't help it that you're a product of your parents. But if you remain that, it's your own fault. Okay? Because we are, are not static beings. We are dynamic in that we have the ability Look at Irvin right there. I mean, he's, he's a psychologist. He knows human behavior and that it takes all kinds of things, but one of the, the, the biggest things is choice. We have to desire, we have to choose for something to change in our lives because without that choice, nothing is going to change, right? We're going to be stuck in what we're in. So we can either hasten the... the hasten the return of Yeshua, or we can postpone it because our actions today affects what happens tomorrow. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 says, the Lord tells Ezekiel, says, uh, actually says to the man in Ezekiel's vision, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. If you read this passage in the fuller context, what happens is <clears throat> all these abominable things are going on, and, and these guys are singled out. The people that are just, man, we hate this. We are, we are mourning. We are, we are sighing. We are weeping. We are, we are crying. We are calling out to stop. And, and such. They are given a specific mark. They are marked, okay? And that mark sets them aside so they will not be destroyed when the Lord comes in and wipes out those that are doing wicked wickedness. Okay? So with that, our identification, our empathy 
with these two destructions of God's holy house can be counted to us as righteousness, right? Um, you guys are familiar with the ministry Hayovel, right? The, um, the Waller family that does the harvest in Israel, the grapes. Uh, they come in and harvest the grapes volunteer basis. If you haven't heard about that, it's worth checking into, and they do pruning and all that kind of stuff. They basically, <clears throat> believers in Yeshua go over there every year, at least twice a year, and just bless Israel by working in the vineyards, okay, free of charge, and they help them get their harvest in, help them prune the, the vineyards and everything. So they, they are, they've been over there for, I don't know, 15 years now or something like that, and they actually have an unheard of uh, status. They have been given Israeli status, uh, citizenship, because of the work that they do over there, okay? Um, and you know what? I just remembered I did not honor our guest, so I will do that here in just a moment. I totally forgot. I should have done that earlier because this is directly related to Miss Johnson here, and we're going to introduce her in just a second. Um, and so they, they have this commentary that I read the other day. It says, after this, talking about this passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel, God commands his soldiers to go through the city beginning at the temple and kill everyone who does not have the mark on his forehead. Because of the abominations, idol worship, and sins of the people taking place in the temple, God's justice must be enacted. Only those who sigh and cry over Jerusalem, those who mourn the sins and wrongdoings taking place, are the ones saved. Wow. Wow. So are we mourning because these things have taken place and the holy city of God has been destroyed, the, the temple is still in ruins? Are we longing to rebuild the holy house? Every day we pray in the Amidah for the rebuilding of the temple. We say at the end of the Amidah, we say, Lord, our God and the God of our fathers, let, your, let it be your will that the holy temple be rebuilt soon and in our lifetime. Give us our portion in your Torah and let us serve you there in fear as we did in days long ago and in ancient times. Let the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be sweet to the Lord as, in, as it was in days long ago and in ancient times. Okay? Is, um, so, I'm going to wrap this up in, in this way here. One day the holy temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstituted. One day Yeshua will fully establish his kingdom on earth with his throne in Jerusalem. He will rule the nations in justice with an iron scepter. He will turn our sorrows into joy and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he will do what we've been talking about, what we began this message with. He will turn our fast days into days of rejoicing, gladness, and feasting. But until that day, we have to do our part. We must weep and mourn and long for the hour of his return. As we say, we said it today in our music time, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. And though he tarry, I will wait daily for his coming. We must believe the gospel message of Yeshua by daily living beyond what we believe ourselves capable of, by turning away from apathy, indulgence, and living out our days without the concern of the ramifications of our choices. Today, 
is Tisha B'Av. But because of Shabbat, as we said earlier, fasting is postponed until tonight. But today is a foretaste of the day spoken of by the prophet Zechariah, that our fast will be turned into feasting. So today, we need to have this double portion of joy, this double portion of gladness, of, of zeal, of rejoicing, and knowing that we are experiencing this small down payment of what's to come. <clears throat> but we still fast tonight and tomorrow. We fast from sundown to sundown. No food, no drink. It's a time to afflict our souls so that fresh oil, I'm sorry, so that our flesh may be put, uh, be put under subjugation to a higher authority than our stomachs. I know that's pretty much supreme, but we have to work on submitting it to a higher authority. <clears throat> no, the voice is not as loud, but its melody is one that resonates with the very core of our being. One that sings the song of love and redemption, arousing us from our slumber. So my challenge to you is this. Will tonight and tomorrow be like yesterday and the day before? Or will we participate in the work of redemption that Yeshua desires to take place among his people? Which voice will you listen to? The voice of the flesh or the voice of the Spirit? May you take up the challenge and your heart ache for the return of our King and His holy house to be restored in Jerusalem. Maranatha, Maranatha. May the Lord come soon and in our days. Shabbat Shalom.